Good morning, Jacob's Well. My name is Tyler Stowell. I'm on the teaching and discipleship teams here. Um, yeah, I set the over-under for announcements at 12 minutes, and I had a lot of way-overs, and they came in at 5. So uh, I'm not going to bet on anything this sports season. But I, I was impressed, but I was a little disappointed at this the same time, like, you know, I didn't say that. I just said it was going to take a long time. Uh, but, you know, my, the over-under for my servant is not 12 minutes. So, um, uh, we're jumping back in to where we've been in John. And uh, I won't say who said that it, it, 57 verses in chapter 11 was too many for, uh, to be read. But when Morgan asked me, uh, what verses I should read. Some of you caught that. It's a little hard to kind of break it up and pick and choose. We're going to walk through the whole thing, and so I'll end up reading the whole thing. But I wanted to give you just kind of the highlights of, of what happens and, and kind of the key story and give away the ending that Lazarus does indeed come back from the dead. So that's kind of sitting there. But maybe pretend that you don't know that's going to happen uh, as we jump in. So um, we've, we've been journeying through John, and John's been talking about... Uh, whoa. Uh, okay, Jesus. Um, John's been talking about this Jesus, that he's the Son of God, and he's been showing us these signs that Jesus is, is doing, and all these, all these miracles, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people with just, a little bit of, with just a little bit of bread, and all these I am statements that Jesus has been making, kind of along with that, John's been holding them up and saying, hey, this is, this is the Son of God, this is what I saw with my own eyes, and the call for us is to believe. To believe, and probably a better translation in our, you know, modern day English is trust. Like we use that word belief for a lot of different things. Oh, I believe that whatever. I believe aliens exist. I believe Santa Claus exists. I believe whatever. But there's a difference between saying that and then I trust. Like if you trust that aliens exist, that that impacts your life. I don't know how, but that would impact your life, right? If you trust Santa exists, like you know, in in at least December, like that impacts that impacts your life. Right, so John is calling us to not just an intellectual, like, yeah, I believe that this is out there somewhere, but has no bearing on my life. No, he's, in, he's calling us to trust and throw ourselves onto this Son of God. And we've been talking about what does this, um, this bread maker look like? What does this miracle maker look like? What can we expect from this shepherd? What kind of shepherd is he? What kind of Son of God is he? And we're going to get a great glimpse at that today. This chapter, there's you know, some different... Uh, perspectives out there. This is really kind of the hinge chapter in the book of John. We've been looking at basically three years worth of Jesus's public ministry in the first half of the book, and now the second half, it's going to be one week, plus, you know, a month or so after Jesus's resurrection. And so it slows way down and zooms way in for the rest of this book, which we're not going to get to right away here in the summer. We'll jump into some other things, but this is kind of the hinge point. This is, this is the culmination uh, in many ways, this is the final sign before, uh, before Jesus' own resurrection. So there's a lot here that John's almost kind of wrapping up the first half of his book. And I want us to keep that question in mind of what can we expect? What kind of God can we expect? What does it look like for Jesus to love us? If he is the one who loves us and we are loved by him, what does that mean? What can we expect from him? And then what, is it, what does it look like for us to love him, to, to believe, to trust in him? What does he expect from us? 
So in this story, I want you to look for how, how, does, how does Jesus, what does Jesus do to love them? Love is an action. So what does he do to love them? And are they loving, are they trusting Jesus in return? As we walk through, look at the different characters. So, uh, verse 1. We're just going to kind of go chunk by chunk. If you do have a, a physical Bible, I think it's, for this story especially, it's just helpful to have the whole thing right in front of you. So um, pull out one of the Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. Uh, if you have one, digital is okay, but I just want you to be able to kind of see. We're going to jump around a lot here. So John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we learn about this family in, in Bethany, which is just a couple of miles, we find out later, it's just a couple of miles from Jerusalem, pretty close to the epicenter of everything that's, that's going down here. Martha and Mary, we meet them in a couple of different places. Uh, we first meet them in the Gospels. Luke introduces us to them in Luke 10, where Martha is uh, a great host and being super hospitable, making the meal, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha's complaining, like, why isn't Mary helping me out? And Jesus is like, hey, but Mary's chosen the better, Mary's chosen the better way. She's listening to my teaching. Not that hospitality is not important at all. That's just one place where we meet them. But then we get this clue in verse 2, that Mary, it, it's the, she's the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. There's a couple of different scenes where this happens in the Gospels. Most scholars believe that there's, there's two different women that are being depicted here. We don't actually find out about this instance with Mary until the next chapter in John 12, which is a little interesting. Like, why would you write about these things, you know, almost in reverse order? The point that I found this week from some different commentaries was, like, that story in John 12 must have been so familiar and so uh, public that everybody already knew who Mary was. And so even though John hasn't gotten to that part in his writing, like he knows that everybody else knows, hey, this is the Mary I'm talking about. She's the one that did that. They didn't need to even read about it yet. They just had heard about it, which is interesting. I'm not going to jump ahead because this will be next week, but uh, it is interesting. Is that the one where it says, maybe it's a different one where it says wherever the, the gospel is preached, she will be heard of. Um, but people had heard of her. They knew who this family was. So that's who we're dealing with, super close, uh, super close friends of Jesus. A lot of people even think that this is the place where Jesus' disciples scattered to after he was crucified. We don't necessarily know that, but that just shows that there's a lot of familial love between Jesus and his disciples and this family. Even though they weren't a part of the 12, they were really, really close. So the sisters send him saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. I hadn't thought about this, but I loved, I loved what one commentator said this week, that, like, what a model prayer this is for our problems. They just state the problem, period. That's it. Full stop. Lord, the one who you love is, is sick. I don't even know what to ask for. I don't even know if I should ask if you should heal him or raise him from the dead or this or that. Or like, I, just, you just, I need you to know that he's, he's sick. He's sick. So often we try to figure out, at least I do, what to pray for and what to ask for, that somehow I think I've got to know what God's going to do and then ask for that, and that's faith, if that makes sense. We, we underreach or overreach, and it's just always enough to just share the deepest problem. What a model prayer in a personal crisis. Just to, God already knows what we need. Just state the problem. 
So when Jesus heard it, he said this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. Here's the first place I think that we see uh, Jesus loving them. One, he's giving them some hope, saying, hey, it's not going to end in death. It's not going to lead to death. We'll talk about why that's confusing in a, in a few minutes. But he's giving them some hope. And he's going to point them to the glory of God. Which in reality, the, the ultimately most loving thing we can do for other people is point them to the glory of God. Why? One, the way that, the way that John talks about God's glory throughout his book here is not so much like in the sense of giving glory to God or praising God as in like I'm adding to God's glory, which objectively speaking, like we can't do that. God's glory is already as, as glorious as it can get. There's nothing that we can actually add to that to make him more glorious. So what does John mean? Really, as he talks about God's glory throughout his gospel, he's talking about God's glory being revealed, that we would see it, which the appropriate response for is to then praise and say, hey, look at this. And that's really what to glorify or to worship means. It means to point to something and say, hey, this is worth your time. This is worth your money. This is worth your affection. This is worth you spending your resources to build your life around. And that's what John, again, is doing throughout his gospel. He's trying to reveal the glory of the Son of God who reveals the glory of the Father and saying, this is, this is what building your life around is worth. This is worth building your life around. Because God is the one who breathes life into us. We'll see a little later. He's the one who died for our sins, who came back to life. Like, he's the only one that can satisfy our deepest longings, our greatest needs. So it would be most loving to point people to that. Problem is, we live in a world with a lot of surface-level needs that are legitimate and valid, and sometimes we've got, to wade, we've got to wade through that. The irony here that Jesus is talking about and what's going to happen with, with Lazarus, as much glory as that brings him and his father, the supreme moment of glorification ultimately comes in Jesus' own death and his own sacrifice and his own resurrection. So even this whole story is just a foreshadow of what's to come. And yet, it's not just about Jesus' own glory. It says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Like, what he's about to do is also for their glory. Beginning of verse 6, so. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so. What would you think ought to fill in the blank after that? Oh, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and so, what comes next? He went to them, and he healed them just like that, and it was a great story, and they took an Instagram picture, and everybody came to follow Jesus, and it was great. That's what my version says, at least. I don't know what you have. No, it says, verse 6, So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was and completely blows up all of our expectations of what it means that Jesus loves this family and loves us. And that's really annoying and really frustrating. And yet, God's nature, I love how the Archbishop of our church, Tim Keller, who is now experiencing the fullness of, of this nature of God, God's nature is loving. And he, yeah, Tim Keller, uh, where I got this from, is just a beautiful picture of God's nature. That the idea... His, his basic premise was, if God, because God is a trinity, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because God is triune, 
That's why his nature is loving. If he were one in one, he could not be loving because to, to love someone else, to love requires that there is someone else to love. Right? If God was just himself, not in three persons, but one person, he would not be loving until he created and therefore had another being to express love to. Tracking with me? But because God had Father, Son, Holy Spirit in himself, his nature is that each person does this dance, so to speak, around one of the other members of the Trinity. That the Father and the Son dance in love around the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the Father dance in love around the Son. The Son and the Spirit dance in love around the Father. I tried to draw this out on a piece of paper and it just looked like, it just looked like a toddler scribbling all over the place. But that's the nature of God. That's who He is. He is loving. And so nothing that Jesus does here is unloving. Which is also like really annoying and really frustrating. But they're, they're, if Jesus is, if God is love and Jesus is love, and they're doing this giant dosi do kind of dance, then there's nothing that happens in this story that is unloving from Jesus. We have to keep that in mind. And yet it's also okay to look at this passage and say, "What? You stayed too? You stayed? Like you didn't? You didn't get in? Get on the next train?" You didn't get on the next donkey and, and get out there? You stayed? I don't understand. But nothing he does is unloving. He saw Mary and Martha the whole time. He never didn't see them. He never didn't know their needs. When they came and said, Lord, our brother is ill, like that wasn't a newsflash for Jesus. He already knew that. He never doesn't consider what's for their and our good. A couple of logistical things. One, this, this didn't actually cause Lazarus' death. Uh, later we find out he's already been dead four days, so the two days like, didn't actually make a difference in terms of Lazarus being dead or not. In fact, the two days just added to the effect of Lazarus coming back to life. It just further solidified, no, he was actually dead dead. No shot of, this wasn't just a resuscitation, like he was actually dead. Jesus also knew the Father's will. He knew what God had wanted him to do, and so he told no. He, he told other people no. He said, I'm not going to do what all these people are asking me, not if it's not the Father's will. He even models what it means to trust and follow, which again can just be frustrating. One commentary says it this way. He's quoting James Baldwin. The Lord never seems to get there when you want him, but when he arrives, he's always right on time. Commentary goes on to say, this saying fits our story in John 11 by the end, but it does not at first lessen the pain of the afflicted parties in their now. Jesus' delay always hurts. And that's okay that it really hurts. The text here is honest. It, it recognizes our reality that Jesus' delay always hurts. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Verse 7, Looking at this next chunk through 16. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. They thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so you may believe. 
but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Sweet Tommy. This is, this is just a bizarre interaction here. Like, it's just really weird. Really weird. Jesus loves them, so he's going to stay two days. Then he's going to go back to Judea, and his disciples are like, hold on, like they tried to kill you last time we were there. Then Jesus starts talking about a nightlight and making sure that you have light in the dark when you got to get up and go to the bathroom because you're going to stumble in the darkness, and and Lazarus is sleeping, which just adds to that thing. And then he's like, nope, Lazarus is dead, guys. Just going to say it, Lazarus is dead. And then Tommy's like, great, let's go. Ready to die too. Like, it's just weird. It's just weird. I don't really get it. And most of the commentaries I read don't really get it either. Here's the best that I got. One, the whole light thing. Jesus is the light of the world. We've we've seen that. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. These verses are saying that it's better to walk in the light than the dark. We don't actually need the Bible to tell us that. What it's saying is following God's will, following where Jesus goes, even if it's the place where they might stone him, that's the safest place to go. That's the best place to be. And so metaphorically, Jesus is saying, hey, if, you're coming, if you come with me, you're going to be safe. might not be your definition of safe, but you're going to be safe with me. While Jesus, the light of the world, was with them, Dr. Tony Evans says it this way, they could walk and not stumble. Later, they would have the light of the Holy Spirit's presence, but to function apart from Jesus is like walking around at night. Operating without Jesus means you're going to fall on your face. That's what's going on here. We have to follow Jesus even if it doesn't make sense, even if we can't see where we're going. Then Jesus conveys the news that Lazarus is, is dead. How does he actually know this? We don't have any indication that he, that he got the news report. Just points that he knows. He already knows what's going on. And then he says, I am glad that I was not there. This is, this is like verse 6. So when he heard, he stayed. Hey, I'm glad that, that like our really good friend is dead. How in the world does that make any sense? But we see so that you may believe. That you may believe. Jesus finds a lot of joy in our belief, in our trust of him. He finds a lot of joy in doing things such that our faith and trust in him would grow. And in his infinite wisdom, bringing Lazarus back to life was going to bolster the faith of his disciples more than just healing Lazarus. And Jesus didn't even need to go to him. We've seen other places where Jesus just says the word and someone's healed miles and miles away. But he knows that this was good for a whole ton of people. Not just those that were in the story, but all of us sitting here and anybody else that's ever read this story in the last 2,000 years. It's been for our good. That's what came of Lazarus' death. Now, that's not necessarily supposed to make Mary and Martha feel any better. It's just evidence that God is really, really good and that he can do a lot of good with something that's really, really hard. And then, I don't, maybe, you know, I guess this is real. I don't believe that Thomas didn't say this, but I, it just made me wonder this week, like, you know, we all bag on Thomas for being doubting Thomas later on. He's like, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is alive unless I can touch and feel him. And maybe when John was writing this, maybe, maybe, maybe Tommy was like, hey man, I know it's kind of crazy, but can you, just, can you make me just look kind of like a hero? You know, put the line in there where I was like, let's go die with Jesus. Maybe this was kind of, you know, when John was writing this, this was a saving grace. I don't know. I don't have anything else about why Thomas said that. 
And so they get up and go. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Can we, some context geographically, we learn that Bethany's pretty near Jerusalem. That's the epicenter of where a lot of stuff is about to go down. Jesus is fully aware of that. He knows the risks that he's taking by moving closer and closer to Jerusalem. He had been in that area and then had gone to some different places little farther away and he starts trekking back and he knows he knows that this is going to be costly but he loves his friends and then we get to martha's statement that really is it's all of ours lord if you had only what would you fill in the blank with if you had been here my brother wouldn't have died if only this i wouldn't be in this situation lord if you had just done x i wouldn't be here I wouldn't be going through this. How, how would you, what's your if only? What's if, if you had been here? What's that for you? What's the pain and the, the suffering in your life where you have had the same cry? Because we've all had the same cry, whether we've admitted it or not. So this, this begs the question, is Martha trusting Jesus here? Is she loving Jesus in return? I would say yes, yeah, she's being brutally honest. And she's taking that brutal honesty to Jesus. That's the main point, that she's taking all of herself with all of her stuff to Jesus. Do you do the same thing? And yet in that, there's still a couple of, of assumptions that Martha makes that are inaccurate. Right? If you had been here, my brother would have not died. She's making the assumption that Jesus had to be in a physical location to bring healing. We've already learned that that's that's not the case. You can just say, be healed. And again, miles away, someone's healed. But maybe the deeper, harder assumption to wrestle with is she's assuming that Jesus would have healed Lazarus, that love would have equaled healing and intervening. And that's really hard when it doesn't. That's really, really hard when it doesn't. Pastor Scott and I were talking about this a number of weeks ago with some of my own suffering and things that I've been dealing with. And I just, kind of, the, kind of the whole prayer thing, like how do I pray what God wants me to pray and know what's going to happen? And Pastor Scott was talking about the things that God promises, and I think a lot of this even came from the suffering discipleship course that was this last spring. That in our suffering, God promises his presence. He promises to be with us. We see that in Jesus going to this family. And he promises to redeem our suffering for a purpose. Purpose isn't necessarily supposed to be, oh, great, well, this suffering was awesome then. Like, no, the suffering is still suffering. But he promises his presence and he promises a purpose to come out of that. We see this again in this story. What he doesn't promise is to intervene. He doesn't always promise to, to step in and bring the healing 
and bring the saving and bring the provision and bring the whatever it is in the way that we think he should. And that's really frustrating. And I think what it, what it took me just a really, really long time to figure out is that whether or not he intervened wasn't a measure of how much I trusted Jesus. Like I could fully trust Jesus and he could still say, no, I'm not going to intervene in that way. But that's not my fault. That's on the Lord. And yet for so long, I, okay, well next time I just got to just have more faith somehow and figure out what. And he's just, no, no, that's not it. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to redeem it for a purpose. But you don't have to figure out whether I'm going to intervene or not. I'll do that. And so even when he says no, Jesus knows about that. He was told no in the garden. He knows what that's like to hear no from God. And so maybe the prayer just becomes, God, would you just help us cling to you when you say no? When you don't show up when we want. Martha here says, Martha here says at the end, well, I'll get to that. So I think my, my if only, if you had been here, would have been, I've talked about this before, but when my dad died a year and a half ago, we saw it coming, but my two prayers were, God, would you heal him? And would you give our two kiddos at the time, our big girls, the chance to say goodbye? If you're not going to heal him, would you just let them say goodbye? And God said no to both of those. And that really was really hard. That sucked. And I think what's remained uncertain is, is how much my dad will mean to our kids when they're older, in 20 years. I hardly remember anything when I was five. Um, and in fact, the last time that those kids saw their grandfather was six months before that. So Briley, our middle, well, she was only four at the time. Like, I don't remember anything when I was four. How much will he mean to them? That's been a really, really hard thing. Lord, if only if you had just brought healing. If you had just not allowed COVID to happen, which was the whole reason they couldn't go to the hospital, because of COVID restrictions for kids, if you had just, then I wouldn't be here. If you had just, then this wouldn't be my situation. If you had been here, my brother would be healed. I still have that, if only sitting there. But how does Jesus respond? What does he say? Verse 23, your brother will rise again. Here's another way he's giving them hope. Martha says this, well, yeah, I know, he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. This is worth pausing on and talking about what was the, the Jewish view of resurrection. They, they had this idea that, yes, there will be a resurrection of everybody in God's family, ultimately one time in the future when it's all said and done. That's, that's it. And even different, different religious sects within the, within the Jewish community had different takes on this. Pharisees, believed that the resurrection would happen. The Sadducees, which is another kind of political, religious leader group, they didn't believe the resurrection would happen. There was division over this. What nobody believed was that one person could just come back to life. With Jesus' own resurrection to look forward to that, they, they would not, they would, the idea that, oh, they made this up, that they made up this idea that Jesus was, was coming back to life, they wouldn't have even thought of that as a possibility. That was so outlandish. This was part of the reason why they missed it all through Jesus' ministry when he kept telling, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to destroy this church and then rise again. Like The idea of one person resurrecting in the middle of history, it was just not even on their radar. Fabricating that story on the back end would have never, would have never been a possibility. 
N.T. Wright. Go to, go to uh, the slide with N.T. Wright quote on there, Tim. Yeah. Here's what he says about this. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of context. There were lots of other would-be messiahs or saviors or revolutionaries that were trying to lead the charge back then. Jesus wasn't the only one that tried to do that. But in all of those cases, everyone, including Jesus, died. And here's what N.T. Wright says about that. Not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. So this whole idea where Martha says, like, yeah, I know, I know, later, later. Like, it's not even a possibility. She wouldn't even think to ask. Hey, could you maybe bring him back right now? That just wasn't even, that wasn't even there. And so, and yet Jesus, she just, Jesus just, he does this beautiful thing with Martha. Go to, the, go to the next slide, Tim. Do I have one with D.A. Carson on there? Yeah, okay, this is great. When he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, this is, the, this is like the high point, the climax of this first half of John. Jesus' concern here is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief, if I could correct D.A. Carson and say trust, in him who alone can provide it. He not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the resurrection and the life. This is, this is the ultimate hope that he gives. Not just that there is going to be a resurrection, but I am the resurrection and the life. I am everything that you are, all are looking for. I'm the answer to death. That's what we're, the answer to suffering. At the end of the day, like that's what we're all trying to figure out throughout history. I, and Jesus says, that I'm, I'm him. I'm it. That's me. And so what's the Christian view of resurrection? It's this inbreaking of what is to come. It's the already, but not yet. We're not yet all risen back from the dead, but there is already one who has come back from the dead. And that's the one we put our hope in. He, him, we put our hope in a person, not in an it. The it will come because of the him. That's what we trust in. And then Jesus gives, again, this kind of weird little play on words. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Which one is it? Another commentary, Dale Bruner. Do I have this one too? I had a lot of quotes and I had to make some calls. Is there another one on there, Tim? With Dale Bruner. Won't Martha die? Nope. Okay, that one's for later. Uh, no problem. The point here that he's saying is like, yeah, won't Martha die? Well, yeah, sure. She's going to die physically. We still have to deal with that, with that suffering. But her death will never be forever. I love that. Her death will never be forever. Jesus has made death a conquered, superseded event of minimal duration. And so he's talking about in this, there is a, a bodily death. Though he die, yet he or she will live bodily. And then the second one, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die spiritually. There's two different deaths and, and lives going on here. That's the view of this resurrection, the Christian view of resurrection. 
The other reality is that the resurrection was a world-changing cultural shift. Andy Crouch points this out, that literally the resurrection changed the entire work week, like the entire calendar, something that we could argue is not even spiritual. The resurrection totally changed it. Instead of worshiping on the last day of the week, all of a sudden, Jesus' followers started worshiping on the first day of the week. And as Andy Crouch puts it, this is why the, the hipster millennial up on the Upper East Side of, of New York will have a, a latte in the middle of Sunday afternoon today. Because we still have some semblance of these blue laws and that Sunday's supposed to be a day of rest. That goes all the way back to the resurrection. Like that's how literally world-changing this event was. That's the, the Christian view of the resurrection. And lastly, the resurrection, it's not just, it's not just consolation. It's not just a comfort one day for the suffering that we went through, but it's actually a restoration of everything that we lost. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know exactly if we're going to get back everything we lost, but I know we're going to at least keep everything we gained. And all of the suffering that we've gone through, somehow God's going to restore that. I don't, I don't know how. Uh, so Alice and I just finished the show Manifest. Do we, I know we have at least one Manifest fan in here. we have a couple of Manifest fans? Okay. Um, have you seen the ending yet? I don't want to ruin it. Okay. I don't know how to not. I don't, I'm going to try not to ruin it. No. I said one time up here that Scott was the ruiner of all good things, and I should amend that, because it's not, he's not the ruiner of all good things, just good shows and movies. Um, but praise God for the body of Christ that we don't all have to be, you know, the, the ear, I can be the nose or whatever. Um, so, yeah, man, it's a great show, like it just rides really high, super intense, it's really interesting. But there, there, is a, there is a scene, and the whole premise is these people go on a trip, and they come back on a plane, and they go through like a crazy thunderstorm, and when they land, to them, no time has elapsed. It's just the three-hour flight or whatever it was. When they land, it's five and a half years later, back in New York City. And they're all like, we don't understand. We just were on the plane, like nothing happened. And everybody else is like, we've been looking for you for five years. I got married to somebody else, and this and that, and we did this, and what, like, and now you're here. And then the whole rest of the show is trying to figure out. There's some supernatural kind of stuff and, and crazy craziness. They're trying to figure out what happened. And there's a scene in which they, they get a glimpse of what it would be like had they, like had the plane just landed like normal time and there wasn't some kind of weird time lapse supernatural thing. They get a glimpse of what it would be like to walk off the plane back into their real lives. And there is a sense of like everything's been restored. They got back all that they had lost. The man whose wife had, had died in the time since, like he got, he got her back. All the, and at the same time, though, these people on this plane, they had been through a, a lot in the time since. And the things they had gained in that time, they would have lost had they just gotten off the plane, like normal. So they gained back what they lost, but they lost what they gained. And I don't think, I don't think that's what the resurrection is for us. I think we get to gain... In some way, shape, or form, we gain back what we lose, but we also get to hang on to what we've already gained. Does that make sense? And that's, that's the Christian view of the resurrection. Unfortunately, Lazarus is still dead in our story. And so what do we do with that? Love the question from Jesus in 26. Do you believe this? Point blank. He just asked Martha, and she says yes. She says yes. Here's another quote from one of the commentators. I, I love this. She says, you're, the, you're the, son, the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world 
And this common commentary says that Martha can still believe in and give this triple tribute, Christ, Son of God, the one who's coming into the world, that Martha can still believe in and give this tribute to the friend who came too late is a testament both to her faith and to the convincing power of Jesus' presence. I love that it has that, the friend who came too late. Like in her eyes right then and there, Jesus came too late, and yet she still says, I, I trust you. I don't have any other choice. I trust you. That's so hard to do in this life. And yet it can be with gritted teeth. It can be with if-onlys. It can be with all of the questions. Definitely not 12 minutes. Okay. 28. Let's keep going. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. To weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of this blind man also have kept this man from dying? <clears throat> there's a lot here. There, there's some great stuff with Mary. I'm not going to wade into all that right now. Um, but we see, yeah, we just see a lot of really beautiful stuff here. We see Jesus deeply moved. <clears throat> this is a great this is a great picture here. Um, I'm going I'm to say embrimaumai <clears throat> is how you say this. Embrimaumai um, is the word, and it, it means to snort with anger. To snort with anger. And the, the idea is, um, really, really it means like snorting with anger in a state of snorting. It's not just that Jesus like once was like, oh, that's annoying, but like, repeatedly he's he's staring this death this suffering in the face and he's just like a bull that's ready to charge he's just snorting with anger and i i i looked up you know some things about bulls the only image i have of like a bull snorting with anger is some kind of cartoon image or something like that um and i was like you know bulls okay red they get you know they get like mad at red apparently that's not that's not the case it's not actually the color Bulls and cows apparently are colorblind. And so it doesn't really matter what color it is. I guess it's just the, wa it's just the waving of the flag, like the matador. It's just the waving of it that, that excites them and, and gets them upset. And apparently it's red because by the end of the bullfight, there's probably some blood, and the red is supposed to kind of disguise the, the blood. I thought that was interesting. Um, but it's not the red. But I think about a bull snorting with anger, ready to charge, ready to take action, ready to, to do something. Jesus is deeply moved here to the point that he has to respond in love. He has, he's so moved that he has to do something. And the first thing he kind of does is, where's the tomb? I want to go see it. Where's the tomb? I've got to go and be there. Deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And I think, as I had my if-onlys with the Lord this week, still a year and a half later of my dad dying, if only the girls had gotten... Jesus came near like he did here 
And he said to me, hey, I snort with anger over that. I am just as upset as you are that your dad died. I am just as upset that there was this worldwide sickness that kept your kids from getting to say goodbye. I am snorting with anger at the death and suffering and destruction. I'm just as moved and as upset as you are. And that was like a balm to the soul. Now it raises all kinds of questions still. Why, why the sickness? Why cancer? Why all, those things are all still there. But I know that Jesus is one that snorts with anger and is upset at that. How do we know that? Well, he is moved again. He moves even further into it. In verse 35, he weeps. He not only comes near, but he weeps with us. Death hurts everybody, including Jesus. And if he's the one who is the most truly human, and discipleship is following after Jesus to become more and more truly human, maybe we need to weep a little more in our lives. I'm thankful there has been a movement of late in society and in the church that tears are a good thing. As if, can I, can I I'm going to try to pull up Instagram here on stage. Is that allowed? I don't even have Instagram, so it's just going to be the like, please log in and sign up and all this. But uh, Allison actually sent me this earlier this week. This was just like really good uh, like science psychology stuff, as if Jesus crying wasn't enough evidence. <clears throat> just a, a couple of thoughts. I don't even know who this is from, but they have a blue check, so I think that is good. Um, here's what this said. This is just good. If you cry immediately when you're upset or overwhelmed, this is your body trying to rebalance itself. Most people think we cry because we're sad, and that can be true, but crying is connected to our nervous system and our body's natural impulse to self-regulate, which is why when you feel angry or overwhelmed, tears flood to your eyes. Your body needs a release. You might have an urge to cry when you're in conflict, when someone yells at you, when someone blames you for something, when you're too overstimulated, when you're emotionally overwhelmed in a positive way. Research shows that oxytocin and endorphins are in tears. Crying is the parasympathetic attempt. Take that one on your next date night. Parasympathetic, impress some people. Attempt to bring the body back to homeostasis, to a, to a state of balance. Crying is the body's attempt to get you out of fight or flight. This is why after crying we feel relaxed and at ease. Our parasympathetic nervous system has been activated and it has a soothing effect. Holding back our tears can keep us in a dysregulated state. So allow your tears to flow. If you need to take space and be in private, take it. So many people apologize for crying or feel shame. Tears are your body trying to help you. Let the tears flow. I love that. I love that. And I, I had a really hard time crying until my dad died. I probably cried more in the last year and a half uh, since then uh, than, than before that. But tears are like really, really good and really healthy. Jesus is not afraid of his own tears. And I remember um, my dad and I connected a lot over football and getting to work with Rutgers football as a chaplain. I traveled with the team, and I would always call my dad from the stadium. Um, he always called his dad after he coached games. My dad was a coach for a long time. He would always call his dad. When his dad died, he started calling me. And when I started uh, doing this role with the football team, I started calling my dad on game day. And I would call him from the stadium. And last fall, 
the first football season without him, like I knew it was going to be really hard. And I had, I had told a, a handful of friends of mine that are on the coaching staff, and I just said, I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to need, but I just when we get out there, it's going to be tough. So I don't even know what to ask for. I just want to make you guys aware of it. And so I have a whole routine that I usually do. I get out to the field and kind of walk around and pray. And then I would call my dad. And as soon as I stepped on the field pregame, I was like, I can't even, I can't even pray. Like, I just, it just hit me. And I walked over to kind of the far sideline and sat down on one of the benches. And, yeah, like, I just, I didn't really want anybody to, like, interrupt me. Um, I have a hard, t- I had a hard time and still do crying, like, you know, in public. I, mean, I guess, I don't know who really had, was like, yeah, I'm going to go out in public and I'm going to go to Times Square and just let it flow. But, um, but I kind of sat down and, and yeah, just was kind of had my head down and, you know, was kind of misty eyed and former football player who I actually had the chance to disciple was now back as a strength coach. And he came over and he just sat next to me and put his hand on my back and didn't say anything and just almost acted as like a bodyguard to just physically give the space that I needed. And that was when it, all the tears just started flowing. And I don't, I've told him, I don't know if I can tell him enough how much that meant that he created that space. I guess Jesus was pretty good at crying in, in public, but it's okay if you're not. Find the space you need to let the tears flow. It's okay if it takes a really long time. I wish we, we had a, almost more details of what this looked like. But Jesus wept. He came near enough to weep. Death hurt, hurt him too. It was hard on Jesus too. And we see the, just the depth of relationship and, and it, God's relational, God's emotional. We see that here, right? We are made in his image. Jesus didn't like become emotional when he became a human. He wasn't made in our image. We're made in his image. So he brought all of himself as God to a human body and that includes tears. I love what Psalm 56, 8 says, the psalmist is writing back to the Lord and he says, you have kept count of my tossings. To me, I, I think of like sleepless nights. You've put my tears in a bottle. And I, I, don't know, I don't know if there's any indication of this, but I almost wonder if God just has this like giant warehouse of bottles of tears that when we walk into heaven one day, he's going to say, here's your, I saw them. I kept everyone in a bottle for you. Here they are. They weren't missed. May we not neglect to fill up that, that bottle. I think tears are a sign of trust. And yet we, we see they're also a sign of love. right? Did you catch so far the one place where everybody was like, oh, wow, Jesus really loved this guy? It was after he cried. After he wept, they said, see how he loved him? How did they know that Jesus really loved them? The tears fell. I think that's a beautiful picture. All right, we got to keep going. Because Jesus is not afraid to come into our mess and come into our suffering and come into our brokenness, but he still is the resurrection and the life. There still is a hope here beyond the tears. And that's good news. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, still snorting with anger, he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. 
Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I mean, this is it. This is the moment. Jesus is so excited that he gets to do something that will help these people believe and trust that he is the one who has been sent by the Father. That's the way, more than any other way, he refers to the Father in the book of John is the one who sent me. And he wants these other people to believe that he has been sent, that he is the answer to death and sin. And so he says, Lazarus, come out. Just the power, like, this is, this is a picture of Genesis. God spoke, and everything came into being. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And that was it. One commentator said it this way, even before the last day, Jesus' cry of Lazarus, come out, proved to be an instance where the dead heard the voice of the Son of God and sprang to life. Though it's not John's point, it has often been remarked that the authority of Jesus is so great that had he not specified Lazarus, all the tombs would have given up their dead. I thought that was really cool. I don't, I don't, we don't know if that's there, but like, why not? Had he not specified, just this one, just Lazarus, everybody else just hold on. Not yet, guys. Just Lazarus. But that's the power. The shepherd called his sheep by name. And Lazarus heard the voice and, okay, I guess I'll come out. I think there's a song about that, running out of the grave or something. What do you, what do you need Jesus to, to resurrect in your life? What do you think he wants to resurrect in your life? I don't know. In a few minutes, I'll give you a chance to consider that. What do you need him to call out in you to come back to life? I don't know what that will look like. And I also know that, that like, all, for all of us, our story doesn't necessarily end this way, right? In fact, to my knowledge, like, nobody else has gotten their loved one back after four days of death. And this is the only instance. Our story doesn't always end this way, and that's okay. God promises nearness and purpose, not intervention. And yet, he has intervened in the most ultimate way, in what happens next. Let me read this last passage, the last chunk here, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. <clears throat> so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he won't come to the feast at all? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Cliffhanger. So here's what's happening. 
this prophecy. Caiaphas here, the high priest, he's thinking at a purely political level that it would be better that Jesus would die for the geopolitical nation of Israel so that we can stop this madness so that Rome doesn't get too upset at us so we can keep doing our thing and making money and ripping people off at the temple. It would be better that Jesus would die than for all of that to stop. And yet, I just have to think that John was like, John was like, he, he said that later on, whenever John heard it. He said that? Like, that guy actually said this? Are you kidding? Thank you for the, the, the lob to the gospel message. Like, I'm just going to take Caiaphas' words and put it right here. It was a, a completely unintentional prophecy of the way that God would, in fact, bring about divine and human reconciliation. Jesus' death would not only save a nation, but would also gather all the nations, the scattered children of God everywhere. Totally unintentional. Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying. And God's like, thank you very much. John's like, that'd be a great line. I'm going to put that in there. And so, that was all a result. Culmination for sure. And God's sovereign, so Jesus came to die. Like We get all that. But from, from, almost from a, a historical human perspective, like, if Lazarus hadn't come back from the dead, would Jesus, would they have wanted to execute him? Maybe not. It's just a picture here that Jesus literally traded his life for Lazarus. Bringing Lazarus back from the dead, he knew that that was going to cost him his life. He knew that he would end up on the cross. Again, he knew that anyways. But he knew that if I do this sign, if I bring this guy back from the dead, the Pharisees, and the, they're going to freak out. And it's going to cost me my life. And a couple chapters later, Jesus would say, isn't this love that, that a man should lay down his life for his friends? We've said kind of all along that you know, some of these ways we would expect Jesus to show a pretty spectacular display of his deity. He doesn't do it that way. This is one of them where he does. He brings the guy back from the dead. But he does it knowing it's going to cost him his own life. And so Tim Keller, can you put that quote up there, Tim? I think, I've got, I think I've got this one, Tim Keller, yeah. So the whole premise of why does, God allow, why does God allow Lazarus to die? Why does he allow suffering in my own life? If we ask this question again with the cross in view, why does God allow evil and suffering? And we look at the cross, we still don't know what the answer is. We don't know why. However, for our own suffering, we now know what the answer isn't. The answer of why did God allow this? It cannot be that he doesn't love us. That can't be why God allows suffering. God takes our misery and our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Where do, where do God and his son ultimately get the most glory in this whole story? It's, it's the coming death. Jesus' own death and his own resurrection. Which is for our good. His glory and our good are so wrapped up and so intertwined but sometimes in the moment of the tears and the loss and the if-onlys, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And yet we have to keep looking at the cross. We have to keep looking at the bloodstained cross and the empty tomb. Sometimes it is helpful to see other things in the world that point to this. Go to that slide of pictures, Tim. This is where I'll wrap up. Twelve minutes times five or six. These are called fire poppies, these flowers. Sometimes they're called fire followers. Anybody heard of these flowers? Orange fire poppies? Okay, 
I got this from someone else, but this is going to be fun. Fire flowers. So these, these are super rare, these flowers. And they grow predominantly in California. Brent, I'm surprised you guys haven't heard of these. These pictures are actually from uh, the landscape. I think it's in Salinas, where there was a, a really bad wildfire uh, a couple years ago. And these, these flowers, their seeds, stay under the ground. I've heard for hundreds of years they can be underneath the ground. And they germinate only under really, really intense heat, like a wildfire. These things germinate, and you can, you can see the landscape is just, I can't really see, but you can see that the landscape, these lights are something here. The landscape is just, is totally torched, right? You can see the black and, the, and the, the, just the charred land, the, the trees, the, the, the brush, and yet there's these beautiful flowers that have popped up. Life amidst death. It gets cooler, right? Flowers, what do they need to keep growing? They need germinators, and they need bees and butterflies and other things to come so that they can spread the seed and all this other science stuff that doesn't totally make sense to me. And so once these flowers pop up, which only happen after a forest fire, once these flowers pop up, those germinators start to come back, and they start to do their thing and spread seed. And eventually other green stuff starts to grow, and more little critters and stuff come back. And more stuff grows. And more animals come back. And the whole food chain. And, and the landscape eventually is totally restored. Because life comes out of death. God put that thing in creation as a reminder that in the midst of a crazy suffering, that our God is a God who brings life out of death. He is the life. He is the resurrection. And, and I believe he wants to bring more resurrection life here and now even in this room. But to do that, we have to make our needs known like these sisters did. We need to be honest with them about our wrestlings and our sufferings. We can let go of what we think he wants to hear from us. We can let go of what we think he expects to hear and just be honest. We also need to let go of what we inaccurately expect of him. To know that he will not be unloving toward us, but it might not be love in the way that we think. He loves us in the way that he knows we most need, and yet he's not afraid to move in those places of death and weep with us. He is just as upset as you are, and he loves you dearly. Will you just let him meet you there to bring life out of death? Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks. Thanks for, just, I don't know, the ways you met me this week through this. Suffering is really hard. Death is really hard. I know there's lots of that experience here in this room. Some that I'm aware of, some that I'm not, and yet you see it all. It's not news to you. And that indeed raises its own sets of questions of why and if only. Lord, would we be bold enough to bring those to you? To snort with anger ourselves at why you allow certain things to happen, and yet would we pause long enough in time to hear you join in in our snorting with anger, to join in in our weeping. Lord, I'm so thankful that you are a Savior who weeps with us. And yet you also do bring life. And there will be a resurrection one day for those of us in your family 
which I'm thankful for, and yet, Lord, that time between now and then can just feel like a really long time. It will be but a breath later on, but it feels like a really long breath right now. So would you come and meet the death and the suffering in this room, God? Would you walk among us and weep next to us? And would you begin to bring about the seeds of life that we would be a beacon of hope to those around us that don't have that same hope, Lord? Would we get to offer that out of our pain? Would we get to hold out some flowers to those that are in need in the world around us? In Jesus' name, amen. So one way to, I, I think, rather literally experience this life and death is at this table here. Right, of communion, where Jesus instituted this meal, where he has the bread. We have gluten-free crackers in the middle here, bread on the outside, where he took this bread and said, hey, my body's going to be broken. Lazarus, I'm going to bring you back to life, but my body is going to break because of that. And my blood is going to spill because your blood's going to start pumping again. But I'm willing to lay down my life. And so we take the bread and we dip it in the wine or juice and we eat as a, as a way to say, Lord, I, I trust you. You can bring your if-onlys to this table and he'll give you back his resurrection life. I don't know what that'll look like. But before you come, and this is for, for followers of Jesus, before you come, I would just encourage you to pause for a, a minute or two and just ask Jesus, how does he want to meet you in this? I don't know how he wants to do that. But would you, would you ask him? And then if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome at this table. If you're not, you just honor him more by continuing to sit maybe in that question or... Or for the first time, might you come out of that, that grave? The Bible says we're all spiritually dead until Jesus breathes his life into us. Maybe today's that day. That'd be a great, that'd be an awesome thing. And when you're, when you're ready.